This week, I am joined by Matt Alderman and John Strand. We are going to interview Andrew Peterson. He's the founder and CEO at Signal Sciences. We're going to talk about prioritizing bugs, functionality, and security fixes. In the enterprise new, kind of a, news, rather, uh, it's kind of a slow week. RSA, I think, is on the horizon, and we're reaching that quiet period. However, we're going to talk about Cynet, their platform approach to tame cybersecurity issues. Salt Security uh, is launching their API protection platform. Ubico has announced their state of password and authentication security report. And we have some acquisition uh, and funding updates from uh, Resec, Resec, Ray, Arisec, Medigate, Cato Network, Sophos, and Darkbyte. So stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly for security professionals by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we talk security vendors and aren't afraid to name names. It's Enterprise Security Weekly. Signal Sciences secures the most important web applications, APIs, and microservices of the world's leading companies, protecting over 7,500 applications and 150 billion production requests per week. Signal Sciences NextGen WAF and RASP help companies increase security and maintain site reliability without sacrificing velocity, all at the lowest total cost of ownership. Signal Sciences patented technology protects any application against any attack with integrations into any DevOps toolchain. Signal Sciences, demand more from your WAF. Learn more at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. Are you worried about PCI compliance? Does your development team understand or care about security? Are you ready to face a breach of your customer's sensitive data? See the worst that can happen before it does. Black Hills Information Security can help you help management see the future. Email consulting at blackhillsinfosec.com to find out how a web application penetration test can mitigate the risk before you go live. Welcome to Enterprise Security Weekly, episode number 124 for January 30th, 2019. I'm, of course, your host, Paul Asadorian, joined in studio by Mr. Matt Alderman to my right. Welcome, I'm, Matt. I'm in studio. Thank yes, you. Yes, nice to have you. You made it here despite some weather. Yeah, a little it's snow good. in D.C. yesterday, but I got here. It's good. Only it's an good. hour or so later. Usually a little snow in D.C. means they shut down like the entire city. It was pretty, it, it was a lot of snow, actually. I was surprised when we landed. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not getting out of here. Uh -oh. <laughs> yeah, a couple schmookons I remember being snowed in. Uh, Mr. John Strand is on the lines remotely. John, welcome. Uh, thank you so much. And it's also cool. Matt's on the show. So that means I get to take a nap, which is cool. Right? I, hey, wait. I was thinking the same thing, John. I, I guess, you know what? We you could both take a nap. Wow. Let's just do it. Just <laughs> let Matt run the show. Give me the keyboard. That's it. That's We're right. <laughs> you, can, you can probably read the teleprompter better than I can. Oh, You've got almost. your contacts in. I, I do. I've got these newer set of glasses because I keep losing my glasses. And for whatever reason, these glasses make it a little blurry. My other ones are good, but the, yeah. Yeah, so I can see it fine. If I mess see, something is, up. This is just, good God, we're getting old. We're talking about like eyes and things like that. Pretty soon we're going to be talking about our teeth. It's like, well, yeah, you know, I got my spare teeth for the show here today. Uh, that's We're on our way, guys. So we, just we watch are. it. I noticed that the conversations with many of my 
friends in infosec have turned more to so i went to the doctor and <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> or the dentist yeah. root canal we never really like, talked no. about that stuff before <laughs> no yeah um so we did mention rsa uh which is coming up march 4th through the 8th in san francisco of course you can go to rsaconference.com forward slash security weekly us dash us 19 uh 5u9swfd gets you $100 off if you would like to do an interview with security weekly or a briefing now interviews are part of our paid uh programs briefings are completely free you can go to securityweekly.com forward slash conference request and request that if you have questions uh you can contact us either through that form or send email to sales i guess sales at securityweekly.com is probably a good place to email uh if you have questions about that so, uh, I would like to introduce our guest for today, Andrew Peterson. He's the founder and CEO at Signal Sciences. Of course, he has a similar background, or at least the previous company, uh, from Zayn Lackey. They were both at Etsy together. Uh, so, Andrew, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I know you guys have uh, had the pleasure of talking to uh, both Zayn and, and James from our team a number of times, but... Uh, uh, hopefully, I'll bring a, a little bit of different different perspective to the to the table for your for your viewers and, and for the conversation today. Looking forward to it. Yes, absolutely, Andrew. So, uh, Andrew, we were talking about uh, essentially prioritization of bugs, and what I think is interesting was going is really going to resonate with John as we were talking. I said, you know, a lot of penetration testers, even outside of web applications, but I think especially with web applications, they want to find like the really cool bugs. Like I, I think that makes, I mean, certainly when I was pen tester, that made me really excited when I found a really, really cool bug, but it's not necessarily indicative of how you should prioritize those fixes. <laughs> the cool bugs shouldn't be necessarily the highest priority. Right. So, those kind of yeah. good opener. Yeah, well, you know, so it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting background. So as you were talking, you were like saying, look, Zane and I have a similar background in the sense that we both came from Etsy. Um, but we have kind of similar backgrounds in terms of what our vocation and, and what our focus was there. I was, you know, Zane um, and my other co-founder, Nick, they, they built and ran the security function um, at Etsy and did a lot of very interesting things along the way. Um, I was collaborating with them the whole time because I was uh, building and running uh, product teams, right? Focused on just building out feature sets uh, really to drive uh, top line you know, growth for the company is what, what a lot of the, the product teams are focused on. And so we overlapped and built you know, security features and, and fraud features and trust and safety features. And um, those are certainly super interesting pieces. But the day-to-day -day work that we had with the security team was like they were identifying um, uh, vulnerabilities and bugs and stuff all, all the time. Um, and what we were trying to work on with them was how do you prioritize that um, th those bug fixes against all the rest of the work that these product teams um, are, are focused on trying to do and build, right? And so I think that's uh, a lot of what's different about how we've approached kind of building our business at Signal Sciences in general is really from these lessons learned while we were at Etsy of what worked between, be between getting those two different teams working better together um, and ultimately, you know, solving more vulnerabilities because when it came back down to it, right? Like what, what are the security teams kind of historically always done in application security? It's we need to be able to find and identify more bugs. Um, and we use, you know, we use this sort of variety of tool sets for that. But when it came to actually making the product and, and the, um, the technology safer, it was really about how do you actually patch those things and get those things fixed? 
Um, and that's kind of the plight of the application security um, teams and <laughs> security engineers across the board is how do we get the engineers to actually fix some of the stuff? Right. So Andrew, um, you were you were yeah. more on the, the build it and product side then. Exactly. Which I think is actually more is harder <laughs> in a way. I mean, if you ever tried to build yeah. an actual product, like it's really hard. As security <laughs> people, we kind of waltz in and go, "Yeah, like I can break that, and you know, I can slip maybe this security solution in or whatever." But building actual software, not the crappy things that like I build to like test something, right? But actual software is really hard. Yeah, well, the, the, I, I sort of have this running joke with Zane, who's uh, our chief security officer. Says like, hey, you should never really be touching code while we're building anything on our side. And, and he's like, look, I know how to break things. I don't know how to build things, which is, you know, yeah, it, like you said, I, I think that's a that's kind of a common core, um, uh, you know, core function of security is to find and break the the tools and not necessarily to build those things. Which one's harder? Which one's easier? You know, we we can debate over that. But I think like ultimately, you know, when security is finding these things and is breaking systems. You need to be able to actually build and, and fix those things to be able to make the, the system safer over time. Yeah, we, it, what, uh, sorry, yeah, I was just going to say, in having that background, so I, I have been a software developer, and I think yeah. many of us in security also have been on kind of both sides of the fence. It really helps. Which but great. having been that software developer, I think one thing that is easy to lose sight of if you're a security yeah. person or an ops person, right, is that developers, we, we don't like fixing bugs like that's not what we're <laughs> that's not like our mission in life is to sit around and wait for someone to create a jira ticket and go you yeah. know there's a problem like when we're not fixing bugs that's when we're actually building things and pushing forward and implementing new features which is yeah. which is really important we don't want to spend time fixing bugs right and that, i mean that's, that's you know mostly what you're evaluated on as a uh, as a software developer as well and mm -hmm. sort of just thinking about what you're what you're doing for your job and this is this is ultimately kind of where we really found ourselves when we were getting our program off the ground and trying to mature an application security program which was look we could we could do pen tests all day we could do red teaming we could do uh, uh, you know install and run uh, static analysis and dynamic analysis and we we, run, we locked the bug bounty program so we're doing all these great things to be able to find bugs but we found like the hard part was how do you get the you know how do you get the teams to, to actually sort of work on uh, f fixing and solving those bugs um, and the high severity stuff is pretty easy, right? Yeah. Like if you have really high severity stuff and you're sitting there and you're talking to teams, they, they know how to prioritize that stuff. The, the, the things that we run into are that really long tail of medium severity and, and low severity bugs where, you know, look, you're not sitting there saying, hey, like the, the world's going to fall apart if, if one of these things gets uh, gets exploited. But you also, it, you're, you're, you have an ever expanding backlog of those bugs. And for us at Etsy at the time, you know, we were launching code a hundred times a day. Mm. So there was always new code that was going into the code base. And that was like live production code that was getting launched all the time. And so hmm. I think we kind of had to, like, we had this kind of come to Jesus moment where we had to say, look, you know, is our goal really to identify all the bugs and have those things all be fixed in some perfect world? And the reality was like, no, not only, <laughs> let's say we weren't launching code a hundred times a day. Let's say it was, you know, we were on some more normal waterfall model, like bugless, bugless code just felt like it was not the right, um, the right goal for us to be focused on. 
um, what was really like the focus for us was how do we really reduce risk uh, most effectively? So this gets back yeah. to what and you- And so Andrew, it's have, you're, you're yeah, reminding me of uh, Chris Breton talks about this in a network uh, sense. Mm -hmm. I actually think in a way it's applicable to uh, application and, and prioritizing bugs. So if you take a scale of one to 10, essentially, right. and you say, all right, security um, uh, severity wise, we know that like eight through 10, we got to fix those bugs. We can spot them. We, we, I mean, sometimes it takes time to understand the impact, but when we realize the impact is eight to 10, we're going to go fix those, right? The one through three, yeah, we might get to those. Those aren't really, right. you know, important enough to, to, you know, recognize it. What you end up doing, and as a network security analyst, when you're looking at events, right, you spend most of your time trying to, in this case, prioritize four through six. How, how do right. I know what to fix in there? How to prioritize it? And do I need to fix it? And having tools that help you do that is really important. And that's what we say on the, the network side. I think it's applicable. I just applied, John, I applied Chris's model to to development bugs. I think it works. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and and what's what's sort of interesting there is that um, you know, you're not prioritizing them just in just just for sort of prioritization's sake, right? Like you have these four through six and and you have that sort of long list. Your your goal is to prioritize them and get the developers to actually take that like your priority and actually mm. fit it into their priority too, right? And right. so that was the thing that Zane and I talked a lot about when we were when we were on the job was like I, I was like look the the only bugs that are being assigned assigned to my developers like they don't only have security flaws they have all sorts of other bugs that are in their backlog and to your point Paul like <laughs> solving and fixing bugs is the last thing that most developers want to do they want to get back to building things so I, this is a conversation that I have really regularly with other security teams that we're working with now is you know, how do you have that conversation and how do you put yourself in the shoes of those developers such that you can have a very productive conversation with them to help them, you know, understand and prioritize yourself. So there were kind of kind of two key things that we learned that were very successful for us to be able to like, you know, A, prioritize them from the security side, but then B, have that dialogue with the with the development teams to make sure that they were prioritizing accordingly as well. Um, and And it really came down to this, right? you're always going to have more lists of bugs uh, and, and you should always sort of be assuming that you're going to create more lists of bugs and, and you're not going to, you're not going to find them all really like that, that stuff's going to continue. You're going to continue to uncover those things. So what mattered to us then most was identifying where, like where were attackers actively trying to, uh, you know, penetrate or, or attack within, within our sort of broad application base in the first place. And, once we understood that, you kind of take that back to the equation that you were that you were talking about, right? You're like, look, we've got we've got all these eight to tens severities. From a security perspective, those are so severe that we're going to take those off the board and we're just going to fix those, right? Then you have basically everything else below it, and you're trying to say, okay, we know the sort of security severity of these things. If you can combine that with understanding, well, here's where eighty percent of all of our attacks are happening on this subdirectory or this subdomain or this. Um, you know, this this app specifically, that really allows you to say, okay, well, we can move all of those four to six uh, severity bugs up that are in that specific area of the code base um, that we know is actively being attacked right now. And that's um, that's such an important piece of data because we I think as security people, we've always tried to factor in, okay, so there's a severity attached to certain vulnerabilities or bugs, but what's the likelihood that someone's going to exploit this. And I think exactly. historically we're kind of like, uh, well, it could happen. 
you know, like someone could discover that and exploit it. And we didn't really have good data to back it up. I think today's tools and solutions help us with that likelihood. We, we, see this, we saw this in the vulnerability management space, started, right? right? I mean, yeah. come on. We've, we've seen this problem before. It's, it's not any right. different. You have a set of vulnerabilities with severity, but are they exploitable? Are they on critical systems? And it's that correlation of those data points, just like you're talking about, Andrew, where if I understand the context of the bug and where it's at in my app, and I understand the attack vectors to my app, now I know whether it's something important to prioritize or not. And it's that correlation of those data points that requires the back and forth between the security teams and the business side, you and on the exactly. on the product side, to really understand those connections. Because if you don't, then security is always going to sit there and go, well, well you got to fix all these bugs when they may not be relevant. Well, well and, and, and kind of springboard off of that, Matt, I, I, I really, really like that idea because... When most organizations, whenever they find a vulnerability, let's say they find cross-site scripting and they say, well, it's on a part of our website that doesn't necessarily have critical or sensitive data. But usually whenever you're looking at a vulnerability, it's smoke. It's basically an indication of a greater systematic issue within the application, more than just that bug or that vulnerability. It basically is identifying that there's vulnerabilities in the development lifecycle process that allowed that particular vulnerability to exist. And the problem is not the bug. It's basically what in the SDLC is actually allowing that bug to make it into production. Mm -hmm. And where else does this actually manifest it as well? So I love that point because it requires an organization to understand between the systems administrators, the developers, and the daily maintainers of the server to actually have a better understanding of their application, much more than just saying, here's a bug, let's fix it. They can take a step back and say, okay, how in the hell did that happen? And does that show up anyplace else? Because your pen test and your assessment may not pick up all the different places where that particular vulnerability may exist. You may have to dig deeper. John, that, that's a perfect example because our, our experience was, you know, look, we started to set up a lot of monitoring just to understand the overall health of the applications at any time. And it, it's it's not always a security problem. Like sometimes the security problem is indicative of, of identifying something else. But a core example that we talk about all the time is, and this is, this is kind of techie, but it's like, look, you see a spike in 500 errors that are happening in your application. That could easily be indicative of some other core bug that's uh, you know that that happened within your system. It could also be uh, correlated with an attack that's happening at that time, right? That's trying to exploit that bug specifically. So being able to get that information sort of directly into the hands of your development teams, your operations teams, anybody who's uh, basically looking at the health of the application, it allows them to diagnose that, figure out very quickly. Is this, you know, is this an operations bug? Is it a security bug? Is it one of, is it both of those things at the same time? And are we being attacked to know how to remediate something and, and to do that quickly? Andrew, what are, what are your thoughts on the the agile process? And it's interesting. I've kind of, without really knowing it, I've applied the agile process to our production systems, for example, that run the show. And so when we have a problem, I always work with the team to go back and say, okay, we we observed this problem, we fixed this problem. Now, how do we go back and make sure this problem never happens again? What do we need to change? And typically, those are process changes, maybe some technology changes as well. We do the same thing with software, and that's really a page out of Agile, right? It's a it's a hundred percent. I mean, when we were sort of in the position of trying to understand, and we were seeing this sort of move um, to you know, ad, there's different pieces of this. There's Agile, then there's DevOps, there's yeah. CI/CD, right? There's there's kind of those processes on the software side. 
we were learning the lessons on the security side of basically saying, how can we apply that same, those same concepts and those lessons to how we, how we run our security program at Etsy. And that was, I mean, it, it starts with what you were saying. Like first step is we identified the problem. That was the area that we, that we didn't know, right? Like, like how can we identify the problem in, in our application from a security perspective if we don't know what attackers are even trying to do in the first place, right? Yeah, and I think one of the challenges we have now is we need that instrumentation out of the application. We haven't traditionally had it in, in, in our old legacy apps. Right. And in order to really understand what's happening at the application layer, we need that instrumentation because now we can correlate that activity with other things that we're collecting and bring those together to go, Oh yeah, we better look there because you know we're seeing activity. We know there's problems here. That should give us the ability to say, yeah, we probably should go fix that, right? And it, I think that application instrumentation has been lacking. I think it's getting better now, but I still think that's a missing piece in this equation that has to be brought back in. Well, and that's, I mean, part of the thing that I think has been missing in the past because we we tried to use and tried to give visibility through other tools and stuff, you know, sort of more traditional laughs. The problem with some of those tools is just how high the false positive rates are on those things. And so if you don't have a signal that you can trust in the first place to be able to get that type of visibility, then, I mean, it's just kind of another area that you're going to fail with your developers when you're trying to get them to actually pay attention to something, right? It's like, well, just like I, if you, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, just to jump in, like, you know, you're trying to get the developers to come in and we had mentioned right. Agile. And one of the concerns that I have anytime anyone starts talking about Agile is usually Agile development is a stick that's used by developers to get security and change management to leave them the hell alone. Mm -hmm. um, because it, it's not, I mean, I understand the principles, right? You know, the, the core to 12 core principles of Agile uh, security development. But if you look at it, security isn't mentioned once. But that was never the goal whenever they were talking about agile development. And most of the time, whenever people start talking about agile, it's pushing code into production faster, having less oversight, less overhead, the ability to go back and try to fix things. But the issue is if you don't have developers that have the visibility all the way through their code, like, you know, they talk about uh, planning is not that important. Planning is incredibly important whenever you're looking at very complicated systems, then you're going to have a horribly insecure product uh, actually going into production. And in fact, we actually see organizations that try to do agile and the vast majority of times those organizations end up with a less secure product in the long run than the organizations that are working with a more standardized development life cycle. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think when, when, when we first were building uh, the security program there and, and we were saying like, look, you know, we're talking to our, our, our technology counterparts and they're saying, look, the, the real goal here is to have a program where we can be pushing code really, really quickly and on, on a regular basis. Like <laughs> most security professionals kind of like hear that and say like, oh man, this, like you said, this is just a process to be able to bypass any of our, our sort of traditional controls to be able to get, um, you know, safe code put out there in the first place. But, but what we started to really understand is that when we did have that, you know, very uh, deep and um, real time and specific visibility into where those attackers were attacking to identify, hey, here's the smoke before the fire here then we also could lean back on that same agile process of being able to say, hey, we can fix these problems extremely fast where, you know, in the past, we would have to go through a process of it, you know, change management would take for a long time just to be able to get a patch out in the first place. So 
Yeah. Like, but I still think that a lot of organizations yep. get into a trap of just doing spot fixes. We found this I vulnerability think. here, fix it. They aren't stepping back and saying, okay, systematically, how did this actually happen? Do we need to up upgrade the tools in our IDE? Do we need a better yep. web application firewall for filtering that traffic in? And that's right. my concern more so than anything yep. else. And, and do you think, like Matt, do you think that that has to do with... Um, like the the app teams and the security teams just just historically never working that well together in the past like because it feels like that's like a process that those teams need to be building together right yeah i mean i yeah, still think do. there's a communication there there we're not having yeah. that level of communication you know when i was at layered insight and we were meeting with customers you know the the back and forth between the app team and the security team w was mm -hmm. still pretty rough it it's not yeah. as smooth as you think we would be now uh, and I think part of it is, you know, security says, okay, here's the vulnerabilities. They throw them over the fence. Development's right. like, oh, I, I, where do, how do I prioritize these compared to all my feature requests and enhancements that I need to make? What I'm interested in, Andrew, is how do we, how do we make it easier for the developers when we do find issues that are prioritized and important how do we make it easier for them? Because I think this is the magic that's missing right now in the, the whole DevOps process. Everybody talks about DevSecOps, but Sec is really not embedded in there at all. Mm -hmm. How do we actually do it? What would make it easier for the developers to consume the data security has and actually do something about it? Because uh, I don't think it's the way we're currently doing it. Yeah, it's... The, the the way that we found success in that was meeting the developers where they already are. Like they they are setting up and, and they have more monitoring in place now on understanding the health of their application and their application code specifically than they've ever had in the past, right? Be that performance, be that operational um, uh, visibility. And we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. It's like, look, all they need is inject some of that security visibility and understanding where those those problems are occurring directly into the same tool sets and the same sort of DevOps tool chains that they're using right now to identify any other problems that are happening within the application and, and within that process for them. So it's like, A, like, it was like, look, you got to make this god awful easy for them to be able to consume that data in the first place. And then it has to be highly accurate, right? If it's not accurate data, then, then they're just going to fall into that same process, which is like, hey, you gave me this list of bugs you know, half of these are false positives, if not more. And they just, they just get fatigued really quickly. So yeah, I like, I, I, I feel like process. we're yeah. constantly pulling the rug out from underneath developers. We're like, you should be worried about cross-site scripting. And then, you know, a couple months later, we're like, oh, there's this new technique, right? We got to worry about that one. So they, they may actually account for that. And then a couple of weeks later, we're like, wow, there's this new, <laughs> there's like always new techniques. And I think that's part of the, what makes this issue so, uh, difficult to uh, to tackle is there's always new new technology and new ways to, to break it. And when I relate that to operations, like okay, yeah, you have a switch, and you know the switch could fail, so maybe we need to power it off, power it on occasionally outside of production and, and test for that. Right? We can give developers the same kind of thing and say, well, the, there's this vulnerability. Here's how you test for it. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is there's always new thing it's a constant cycle it There's is always new things. and that's why i think the integration piece of this is so mm -hmm. important is how do you integrate those activities into that normal 
process and into their tools that they're using so that they can consume it the way they're used to consuming tickets and bugs and other things mm -hmm. and just oh okay so that needs to be assigned to the unit test team so we can test for this new approach okay i need to update my binary because it's got these vulnerabilities and right it just i think the expectation that a lot of security vendors have is that DevOps is going to log into your single pane of glass over here on the security side, and they're going to know yep. how to use that single pane of glass to figure out what is important to them, and they're just going to act on it themselves. No, it doesn't yep. work that way with developers. I, I think yeah. we have to change that mentality on the security side to say, all right, I might have the single pane of glass, but if I want the developer to actually do something with it, I better integrate that data point back to where they have visibility into it because forcing them to log into my tool, I, I just don't see happening. Yeah, we, we philosophically just completely believe that as well. I mean, it's like developers don't need just one other tool to be able to log into. And this is actually why so many of the DevOps tools are interconnected in the first place, right? Like, why do you have all these messages going into Slack and Slack can actually be a really like centralized channel for people to be able to prioritize and do work there it's because they, they don't want to manage all the rest of these tools. The, the other thing though, Matt, like that, that like to your point, I think is really important that we've really taken to heart uh, as we've been building kind of our platform overall is, look, if you're assuming that people are starting to use and you want, and the goal is to have people use uh, a security tool um, at some point, right? So step number one is get, get data that's relevant into the same flows that these folks are using, but at some point they may need to do deeper investigation and dive into our tool, right? Which they do. When they dive into the tool, then we kind of take an approach where as we're designing that tool, we need to design it assuming that it's not always going to be a security professional. So we even have like basic definitions of what does cross-site scripting even mean, right? Like we build those definitions actually into the, the tool so that people can be learning at the same time, even though, right? Like all security professionals are sitting there being like, how does the developer not know what these things are? Well, they don't always, right? So you, you got to be making this stuff easy and really serving serving those types of users by design in your product. Yeah, totally agree. Mm. And, you know, we, we have uh, TLA uh, heaven over here on the security side. We can't expect <laughs> all the developers to know what all these silly acronyms mean just because we know what they mean. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. The, and, and, and I think like ultimately a lot of this stuff comes back to, I think this is something that you brought up before, Paul, which is, Look, even on the network side of the house, right? Like you're sort of sitting there in this position of being like, we can identify these these various um, these various threats, right? And these various um, vulnerabilities that we have. Critical ones, easy. It's that middle. It's that middle tier that's particularly hard. And even security professionals are sitting there saying, well, you know, th these are theoretically bad, but I don't really know exactly how to prioritize these ourselves. If you imagine, <laughs> you go to the developer, the developer's like, these are all theory, right? Like to them, it's like, it's all a theoretical threat. It's not something that's sort of actual until you can show them, well, here are the actual attacks that are happening that are trying to find those specific bugs and exploit those. And that, it, it was, it's, it's hard to overstate how much of a game changer that was in terms of our conversation with them. Because it moved from this like, hey, you know, you're a, you're a, a paranoid uh, uh, security person. And of course, you're always going to be telling me that there's problems in my code to, hey, we're both on the same side here. And the actual adversary is the attacker who's right here. We're seeing this. We're seeing the, the, the attacks happen like in real time. And we can then figure out together how do we prioritize these things to actually make ourselves more, uh, more safe. 
Agreed. Yeah, that's why correlation is important here, right? We need to understand all those pieces and, and make it digestible back into the development staff. Yeah, the, the, the one other thing that I'll say that, that we, um, just to kind of get to your point of how do you make this stuff easier for developers that I've, you know, we had success when we were at Etsy, but we've been talking to more and more security teams and we've seen this, this, this trend start to happen is we actually hired a lot of developers onto the security team. Um, and that was, that, that was core for a bunch of different reasons. One, it creates sort of natural relationships that you can establish with those development teams because you have teammates of theirs that are coming onto your team that know the language, they know the code base, they know the people uh, on those teams. Um, the other piece that was really helpful for us of having those folks on the, on, on the sort of security side was we could actually do a lot of the work or sort of the prep work on making sure that... Um, uh, you know, we could actually come up with fixes for the bugs instead of just identifying the bugs themselves. We wouldn't necessarily ship the code, but we we could do so much of the legwork before we actually handed that stuff off to them. So there's like the one side, which is like, hey, process-wise, just get that into the tool sets that those folks are able to use. There's the second, which is a relationship. Make sure that you have a really good relationship with those teams and you're building that relationship over the time. But at the, you know, at the very sort of end, end of the line here is like somebody has to do the work. And if the security team actually can have some folks on their side that can do at least some pieces of those, the, the, the tasks that need to be done to actually solve those, solve those vulnerabilities, it went a long way to establishing, you know, trust and respect and, um, you know, just teamwork on both sides. Yeah, I think that's important because otherwise it just doesn't happen. And here we are. <laughs> Exactly. Here we are, like sitting here talking about how why don't developers fix their code? Um. <laughs> yeah, and why do, why do breaches still happen? Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. Andrew, are there uh, product updates that you want to give quickly uh, for our, our audience? Uh, so, so we have a bunch of uh, a bunch of fun pieces of news that are going to be coming out over the next um, uh, over the next few weeks leading up to RSA, which mm. I won't I won't give all that stuff away. But one of the one of the features that we actually just launched was. Um, uh, people run multiple different websites, right? Um, and uh, traditionally with WAF, you'd kind of install kind of a different WAF on every single website and you'd have a different uh, management interface to understand what's happening across all those different applications. We just launched something where all of those, um, someone can manage and have uh, multiple different sites that they're managing, um, but all of that data can actually roll up to one management view where you can see attacks that are happening across all those different applications. And, you know, I hate to use this sort of single pane of glass uh, reference, but like that's that's really kind of the goal here is to make it operationally easy, both for the security folks that are operating stuff, but also for the operators that we're pretty excited about. So, And if awesome. you didn't say single that's... pane of glass, I was going to say it for you. People at least understand what that means, but it's we're trying to get closer and closer to make it so that you just don't need to be using multiple different interfaces at the same time to be able to manage this stuff. Yeah, so. central management's important. Awesome. Exactly. Yep. Well, if you want to learn more about Signal Sciences, you can visit signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. Uh, thank you, Andrew, very much for coming on Enterprise Security Weekly. John, Paul, Matt, thank you guys for having me on the show. It was great to, uh, great, great to finally uh, get to be on the show. Thanks. Awesome. With that, we'll take a short break. Come back with the Enterprise Security News. Stay tuned. 
Is your company moving applications into public cloud? Well, now you have problems. As your on-premises security products don't work for public cloud, traditional security assessments don't give you the real picture, and the biggest security threat is now misconfiguration of your cloud workloads. CloudNeedy offers you a cloud-native approach to manage security, data privacy, and compliance. With CloudNeedy, you gain instant visibility into your security posture and the ability to continuously monitor and remediate any deviations. Take a free test drive of Cloud Needy's continuous cloud assurance platform by visiting cloudneedy.com forward slash security weekly. That's cloud and double E T I. The greatest threat to businesses today isn't the outsider trying to get in. It's the people you trust, the ones who already have the keys, your employees, your contractors, and privileged users. 60% of online attacks are carried out by insiders. To stop these insider threats, you need to see what users are doing before an incident occurs. Observe it combats insider threats by detecting risk activity, investigating in minutes, effectively responding, and stopping data lost. Give it a test drive at observeit.com forward slash security weekly. The modern attack service is vast and permeable, extending from the data center to the cloud and device edge. Security teams are stretched thinner and thinner as they try to cover this ground. The result? More high-profile breaches hit the news every day. Don't let your organization be next. ExtraHop delivers security from the inside out, helping enterprise security teams detect threats up to 95% faster and cut staff time to resolve by two-thirds or more. Act with confidence. Learn more at extrahop.com forward slash security weekly. Welcome back, everyone, to Enterprise Security Weekly. Make sure that you join us April 1st through the 3rd at Disney's Contemporary Resort for InfoSec World 2019. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm giving a presentation. A lot of other really smart people are giving presentations, people smarter than me. You should probably go check out their talks. Many of them are coming on the show to talk about what they're going to be talking uh, about in their presentations at InfoSec World. Infosecworld.misty.com. Use the registration code OS19-SECWEEK and get 15% off. Now, at that conference as well, if you're interested in booking a briefing or an interview with us, you can go to securityweekly.com forward slash conference request. Submit your request to do that. Basically, if you go there uh, for all the conferences we'll be at, or actually listed there, Black Hat's even, I think, listed there Yeah, we now. already have Black, Black Hat listed on the form. Yep. Um, but we're kind of focused on RSA and InfoSec World because those are the yeah. two that are the closest. Sure. So that's pretty awesome. Looking, at, It's really fun to see that formalized now. I like it. Yeah. I like well, it, it makes it a lot easier than emails yeah. back and forth. And it, it, it grew so nicely over over time. Um, doing conferences now is really fun. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's part of our brand awareness getting out there. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously we want people to listen and, and watch what we do and that grows our audience and gives us an, a chance to interact with our partners and, and just be more I engaged in those events. So yeah. Doing briefings is, is awesome too. Yeah. So, um, I want to start off with, uh, you know, anytime you do a survey or a study, I just, <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know what, if it is like partly the hacker in me, partly my background in, you know, science when, you know, I, I actually minored in, in environmental science and we look at studies, conduct studies, and we're taught the right and the wrong way to do studies and all that stuff. And I see what I think is a lot of these surveys, for example, which is essentially like a study, right? You're collecting data. Is It's really a lot more about generating content than it is about really insightful analysis. Mm -hmm. So they'll do the survey, 
in this case, uh, Yubico was engaged with Ponemon to do the survey. And when they produced the report, it's just like, well, this percentage of respondents answered this to that question. I'm like, okay. I mean, I could I could read the results. What I'm really after is what does it mean? What what are the trends yeah. that you saw that are insightful that could it, help us? That could is that more? Is yeah. that less? Is it what is it? What what are the actionable results well, and, that would maybe force these me to change behavior? Yeah. Go ahead, John. And, and these percentages don't make any sense. Um, so whenever looking at it, almost half the respondents say companies are most concerned about protecting customer information. And it's like, you know, okay, so the customer versus employee, that's a, that's an ev- kind of an even split. But then 63% of respondents say they've become more concerned about the private and security of their private data over the past two years. What the hell does that mean about the other 33%? They're like, nah, we're cool. I, I just, it, the, the numbers are weird. Um, like these numbers are, are, these questions are very motherhood and apple pie. It's mm-hmm. almost the security equivalent of, do you like puppies? 70% of people said yes. And it's like, what the hell is going on with that 30%? Yeah. I mean, it could be, is it the, the rubric that is the like strongly agree, strongly disagree. So maybe they, you'd have to really look at the results to see how they were measured. I guess it, that's it, my and point. And it's also how you structure the questions oh, yeah. to understand, yes. you know, mm-hmm. is, is, is one of these components embedded under another question? And so it's a subset of the data or are they peers to each mm-hmm. other? And sometimes that helps you understand what does that percentage really mean? So a lot of it has to do with the structure of the survey itself, I think, in really trying to extract some insight out of that to say, well, 63% care, but you know, ha- more than half. You know, then you can maybe correlate sure. that result, but explain it to me. Because if you put both, of, to John's point, you put both of these bullet points on here, okay, I get it. But then I'm confused. I'm like, is it 63, is it two thirds or is it half? Or is it half of the two thirds? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, And, uh, and it's know. also, it looks like it was heavily leading um, the questions, like the last bullet point. Because managing passwords is so inconvenient and cumbersome, 57% of respondents express preference for passwordless logons. And it's like that, I, I hope the question wasn't written that way because... Yeah. Yeah, like they should have asked, how many uh, do you get really pissed off when you lose your second factor physical access token? Yes, (laughs) yes, yes. I freaking hate that. It really sucks. Dude, Dude, my phone, uh, I I just upgraded to a Pixel 3. Yeah, my Pixel 2, I love it. My Pixel 2 got to the point where it stopped charging. And I'm looking at my Pixel 2 and I'm thinking, well, shit, that sucks. And I set it down. And it's at twelve percent, and I'm like, wait a minute, that's my last pass. My entire life was on the phone mm-hmm. uh, that was pretty much busted, so I had to shut it off and wait twenty four hours to get a new phone. And then I had like you know probably half an hour to transfer everything over. Mm-hmm. But yeah, my whole entire life was tied up in the phone mm-hmm. for access to almost everything, and that could have been catastrophic. Yeah, I I have uh, a second factor on LastPass on my phone enabled. Um, so mm-hmm. I have the, like the USB-C or you can mm-hmm. use NFC and it, it's just, it's so inconvenient. Uh, <laughs> it's just so inconvenient. But until somebody comes up with a better mousetrap, yeah. this is the world we're stuck in, which is username, password, second authenticator. Mm-hmm. Um, I did brief with a company and, and at some point I got to get you to brief with them, mm-hmm. but I think they've got this technology that could potentially just change the way we think about mm-hmm. login, username, There's password. Quite a few companies factors. working yeah. on this problem. There, there's yeah. some really interesting tech out there but mm. as long as we stay to username password second factor i mean we're in some f- form of of yeah these issues and then it's just band-aiding 
the issue yeah really, a lot of times with yeah we have a know. lot of people working on pieces of this but i think there's only a couple that are yeah. trying to really innovate in the space and it'll be interesting to see how they play so, out i mean but yubico in their defense could have had a really great findings from this yes, study we just someone's probably analyzing the data they have really smart people that work there and are probably actionable results are coming from it we just you know don't get but then i would wait let, let's get some of those actionable yeah. insights. So let's write an article or a blog post that actually gives us a little more meat uh, so we know how to take the appropriate action to fix it. Yes. This doesn't really give me that. It's mm. just kind of... Agreed. Here's what we found. Okay. Good luck, folks. Um, yeah. I, now, this next company I did brief with, um, and I like them a lot, and I, I try and... There's two salts that we've we've done briefings with. Right. This is uh, Salt Security. It's API platform protection, and this is if you're writing your own software and you're building APIs into it, they can help you secure that. And they've got really good technology, and I like the team there, and I, I like the technology. Uh, I don't have this my notes in front of me and all the details, but I don't know John or, or Matthew read the article. Yep. I, I like this approach. I think it's a problem that needs to be solved, and they're on the right track to solving it. See, and this is what we need, right? This is kind of, you know, creative security approach, finding a hole and then coming up with a product that actually fixes it. Um, you know, tying in with Signal Sciences and kind of their approach to a web application firewall is a different approach than a lot of WAPs. And with Salt, how they're looking at the APIs and being able to help secure the API calls is huge. So if you're a large organization, you're using cloud services, you're using containers, um, the containers are coming up and going down all the time, where exactly is the firewall going to be? I, I love Salt's approach. Approach, uh, for basically monitoring and securing the different API calls. So this this is cool. Like it's much better than I don't know 15 different new endpoint security vendors that are on the market. Um, this one's at least creative and forward thinking. Yeah, what I liked about this announcement because there's they're, they're trying to solve three problems here, which I think are all very valid in the API microservice space. Right, first is discovery. What APIs do I have? Mm -hmm. I mean, the challenge with containerization uh -oh, right? is. Nobody has any idea where all these APIs are. Where are the API endpoints? You've got all these microservices communicating API. Mm -hmm. Discovery is a huge challenge in this, in this yep. space, right? So first core module, discovery, then a prevention to figure out how to protect it, and then some remediation capabilities is really what they're trying to do is find it, detect, try to prevent, and then do some remediation to actually fix it and close it down. I think a really solid approach in a space that needs a lot of help. This well, is yeah, this I can, huge gap. I can see this flying on the radar because your requirement to your developer maybe implement this feature and then they go, oh yeah, I implemented that. And then you're like, well, what's this new API? Well, I, I had to like get this API library, tack it on in order and to implement your feature to meet right. the requirement. And you're like, well, we have what are, API is like, that's in the next two, you know, next two releases down. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. And now like when you pull that library in, Mm -hmm. You have no idea what all the calls are. Like you may only be using yes, four exactly. out of like 25 different calls. Mm -hmm. And one of those calls is like OSCMD. And you're like, what the hell was that? Yep. So no, that, that, that enumeration and that first step that Matt talked about is huge. Uh, just because I know, John, you're yearning to talk about endpoint security. So I, I, <laughs> you're glad God. we have at least one story on endpoint security. Oh, I think I have two. Or oh, maybe two. <laughs> uh, actually, two. Um, so Symantec boasts an advanced protection and hardened capabilities with complete endpoint defense. I thought this was they were announcing um, uh, a managed service around it. I thought that's what I 
No, that was the other one. That was the other one. That's that's the other. Yeah, I thought that's where this was. This article was going to, and it didn't. This article just meandered. It looks like it was written by some type of automatic algorithm that you throw a bunch of buzzwords in, and then it generates text that looks human readable. Ah, okay. But didn't SEP fourteen or fifteen or whichever version already do some of this? This is what I don't understand. Yeah, I I I don't know where the there there is in this announcement. I don't. Right. I couldn't find anything. Ad- All right. So they've incorporated advanced protection and hardening into the market leading endpoint security solution. Okay. I thought you already did that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So well, what is that new advanced protection hard? I can't find the deep. Anyways, mm-hmm. I just. So I've gotten a little bit of insight on how crap like this happens, by the way. Uh, we did an article with a company. Um, uh, I can't remember what company it was, some publishing company. And they had someone interview me. And they took what I said in the interview, and then they wrote an article based on that. And English was not this person's first language, and it read just like this. Mm -hmm. It just looked horrific the entire way through. And we went through, and we fixed it. Paul, Rebecca went in and fixed the entire problem. Oh, yeah, she's awesome. But when I'm I'm reading this crap now, I'm reading it, and I'm like, oh, I know how this happened. They basically interviewed somebody, and then they wrote the article without understanding context, without understanding anything, and you just kind of end up with this garbage uh, that just makes no sense whatsoever you know having people that uh are technical and have a background in technology and security uh is is really good when it comes to marketing context matters Ah, people okay um you can you there's another one in here that you get all the jargon but it's like where give me the meat right what does that mean to me and I, i you know you read halfway down through this thing you can't find any details and you're like Okay, I'm done. Well, Sorry, I'm, I'm, well, I'm lost. Yeah, and when I say technical, you don't need someone that you know understands what every like John was saying every API call and can you know understand the assembly that is incorporated. Like, not that some articles maybe uh, if it's no, a technical yeah. writer, but most of the time, someone with some technical. Rebecca's a, a prime example, right? And the other thing is using Rebecca as an example. Rebecca doesn't know she's going to ask, right? right. She's, she's yeah, not going to try right. and make shit up, yeah, right? Exactly. That's what no. separates the I you know. know the really good people who are who are writing and and those that end up with articles like this. Yeah. And let's get a let's get some value out of this though, because this article is a train wreck. But I think that there's a lesson that we can kind of learn out of it. I've been telling more and more of our customers if you're looking for the bright shiny object, like we we have two more endpoint security articles that are coming up at least, and there's vendors that I haven't even heard of that are coming up. Don't be looking for the bright shiny object that is going to solve all of your woes with some type of snake oil, or even if it's legitimate. If you look at something like Silence or CrowdStrike, they are better at what they do than some. Antec or McAfee, but there is something to be said about unifying your IT security architecture under a vendor. And you have DLP, you have your endpoint, you have your EDR, you have all of that tied together into Symantec, into McAfee, into Microsoft, if you're using advanced uh, threat protection. If you're basically tying that all in together into one vendor, there is value to that. You may be able to get a product that is better at one of those things or any one of those things, but does it unnecessarily make your organization needlessly complex in the process? So that's something that I think everybody needs to start looking at. And I think that that's what this article is trying to say. It's trying to say, hey, Symantec, we do a bunch of really cool stuff like, you know, uh, Endgame and Silence and all these other vendors. We're, we're here too, folks. And that is something that you should be looking into instead of like spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on the absolute best of breed in every single product category. Now, there are customers that we have 
that absolutely do have the staffing, they do have the resources and the funding, they do want best of breed. And you should understand if you're that type of organization, don't always try to jump and aspire to it. There is something to be said of staying with a vendor across the board. I, I totally agree. And I mean, that was part of what the latest version of semantic endpoint was supposed to do it's just then mm -hmm. you see an article like this and you're like wait i thought you already did that so tell me what the new value is and and what you did to enhance why i should continue to use semantics endpoint versus you know switching or adding additional stuff in and i just i exactly. couldn't get there fast enough in the article and look You've got 30 seconds to grab my attention. After that, I'm done. And if I have to read, you know, way down in the article to find it, I'm, I'm not going to get it. Uh, Sophos has acquired Dark Bytes. Yeah, this was the one I think you were thinking yeah. was the last one. Yeah, yeah which uh, offers yeah. some uh, managed detection and response services, which seems to be all the rage today. Yeah. Like, I feel oh. like we cover this, and I see more companies... Uh, offering these services, and I see more companies adopting these services. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but the devil's in the details and how you implement and manage the process. Yeah, but the question is, who's in the better position to do managed detection response on the endpoint? The vendor or a managed security or a managed service provider? And so what we started to see now is we're starting to see endpoint vendors like Sophos acquire these companies. Are, is Sophos going to get into the services game? Because now what you're doing is you're building an MDR practice under Sophos. Is this really the right direction that some of these yeah, guys want to go? But it's also going to cut Sophos's throat because going to their resellers that are using that product, if I'm a reseller, if I'm an MSSP and I'm using Sophos and I'm reselling that product and now you're purchasing a company yeah. like Dark Lights to get into that same space, I'm getting the hell off your platform as yep. quickly as I possibly can. I'm say something else that I can manage. Yep. 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 And I've got, and these products are a commodity now. It's like toilet paper. And if I'm an MSSP, I'm going to find one that's going to work with me and not compete with me. Exactly right. And that's why this is a little strange of an announcement mm -hmm. acquisition, because now you're taking a traditional endpoint security vendor and starting to move them into the space. And look, there's well-established service providers out there that probably weren't very happy with this particular announcement because they're like, wait, I'm the MDR. <laughs> that's 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 yep. my space. Yep, exactly. Um, let's see. Uh, Signet's uh, platform approach tames cybersecurity issues. Wow, it's a really fantastic. Uh, it is, title. but you know, I you know they talk about a lot of stuff in that announcement. They talk about vulnerability management and endpoint, and right, so I went to. I had to go to their website. Yeah, I had to go to the website to see what was even going their on. website was tough. Their website was still bad. Uh, so I go in here and I'm like, okay, all in one, threats, detection, remediation. It, it, I mean, if you think about it, it's it's kind of a sim. It's got UEBA capabilities. I didn't see any real vol management stuff, even though it said it in the press release, unless they're partnering with somebody and I couldn't find any of their partners on their partner page. They're trying to be the all-in-one, right? Bring everything to my platform. It looks like they're trying to displace aspects of the SIM and the UEBAs and, and a few other things. I'm like, we've got enough of those out there too. And I, I didn't, I don't know. I just, I'm not sure how this is going to play out for them, but. Hmm. We wish them the best though. We do. Absolutely. Every we wish time. all Their security interface. vendors the best. Yeah. Their, their interface looks cool. Yeah, that did. Yes. That looks neat. I, th I think there's there's so many different subsections of subcategories of this. 
And it, it, as you know, if you're working for an enterprise and you're in the market for something that gives you better visibility and takes data from multiple sources, I mean, you've got hundreds of different options. Yeah. Uh, and wading those waters is, uh, is very challenging. I see vendors like this all the time yeah. crop up. It's EDR, ransomware, incident response, UEBA, forensics investigations, deception, and advanced threat protection. All mm-hmm. in one. Yeah, that's that's your sim. That's you know. Yeah, there's a lot exactly. of solutions that are exactly. already doing this. Yeah, if uh, you've ever heard me talk about my enchanted quadrants, right? Like you get data from the network, you get data from <laughs> your logs, you get data from the endpoints, and you get data from threat intelligence. How do you bring all that together? There's a couple hundred ways to <laughs> yeah. slice all that. Uh-huh. Right? There are so, and most of them are a pain in the ass, and they're hard to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um. Let's see, into the, I believe these are all now funding uh, rounds. Uh, Cato Networks um, is, has raised $55 million to protect cloud-based computing devices. Uh, let's see, they've raised uh, $125 million. Uh, they say they close a huge gap between the needs of digital businesses and the rigid, slow, and expensive networks provided by legacy te- uh, telos. That's what they say. Yeah, so... Um, I, I know a number of the investors here, Lightspeed, mm. US Venture Partners are in here and some other things. I mean, think about this as a cloud-based, it, they call it, it's an SD-WAN, right? So they're they're coming, the software-defined networking WAN in the cloud that allows you access to various components in the cloud, on-prem, et cetera. It's like a VPN on the internet. Kind of, <laughs> is the best way I could. But you don't necessarily have to maintain all of your own hardware and Correct. endpoints, right? Right, yeah. you don't have to do Because it's software-defined. Right, because yeah. software-defined, it's sitting up in the cloud. The one challenge I have with these technologies is we're still forcing everybody to a single point, the single tunnel, to get to anything on the internet. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that long-term is the right way to solve this problem, just because if I'm a user on the internet and I want to get to something on the internet, why do you shove me through this cloud-based VPN? I get it because so I, I can, can make see sure all the you're not being a bad boy true. and violating policy. True, that's true. That's yeah, why. But, that, yeah, yeah, but but I think that gets hard to manage over time. And I think when the, when the whole world flips upside down, and everybody's outside of the firewall. I'm not sure shoving everybody back through a VPN firewall-based cloud solution is necessarily the right answer. It'll be interesting to see how these technologies evolve over time. Yep. I mean, there are companies the right doing really well not. with it. I mean, Netscope is doing yeah. really well. But that's where and, that's where these guys are. Yeah. And and I feel like it is going to be a tipping point. Um, I started talking about this a while ago where more and more of our customers are moving more and more of their infrastructure into cloud-based services. And I think it's going to be a very, very abrupt shift where organizations are basically going to say, why exactly are we running an internal Active Directory environment where we can use Azure AD, where we can have all of our files in the cloud, and Microsoft offers all kinds of great security features built into that. I, I think it's going to be fast. And if I'm talking to anybody at all, and they say, well, we're planning on building up our infrastructure for a new company, there is no way in hell I'm going to tell them to stand up an Active Directory for us, set up a DMZ, set up your firewall. There's just no way that that's going to scale over the next five to 10 years, especially with the way workforces are now being mobile, bring your own devices and trying to compete for talent to make it a cool place to work. That's going to happen. It's going to happen fast. And that's why when I see these types of funding rounds, I can look at this and go, yep, that makes sense. 
that one that one makes sense to me for sure. I, I still think that there's going to be an economics factor that forces companies at various stages for various projects not to put things in the cloud and, and use SaaS-based mm. products. I mean, we've seen that here, yeah, Matt, right? That. Like at, you add a cost per user per month, and then as you add more features on, like Active Directory is an example, now you want more features, you pay more, you pay more, and you pay more. Like at what point do you just tip the scales and go, well, that's, I'm paying more than I was before hosting it myself. And I think we need to balance that. And again, it's different size companies at different stages for different solutions. It, but I, I feel that pain sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes in, in projects that we do and others that I see doing. And I agree, right? And I think that that's any vendor that's working in that space has to be very con very conscious of how they're setting up the pricing. And I think Microsoft is doing better than most vendors uh, whenever they're setting up pricing for new services that are in the cloud. Um, like if you're trying to enable security analytics in Office 365, I think that's like $8 per user per month, mm -hmm. um, which is which is dirt cheap, right? Compared to a right. lot of other products that you can purchase. So yeah, until I think they you raise do the, have- Until they raise the price though. That's what I don't like about it is yeah. it's not, if I buy a piece of hardware, my my costs are pretty fixed, yeah. right? That's that cost can. But Microsoft fluctuate. has the advantage because they just put it under the ELA yeah. and they bundle it all together. Where sure. other vendors sure. don't have that same yes, pricing right. leverage capability that mm -hmm. Microsoft does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and also Microsoft always discounts the hell out of everything with their customers anyway. They do. If you're paying full price, you're a chump. Yeah, mo most large companies, Microsoft, Cisco, and others do as well. But what I think is interesting, technology-wise, is. I think as containers and microservices become more mainstream, it's going to be pretty cost effective to have local devices and systems running those containers. And I've, I've already yeah. seen a couple that uh, are very specific to running containers. It can run a ton of, I mean, you could have two of these devices mirroring each other in the internal yeah. network, maybe for a fraction of the cost of what you would host a lot of that stuff. That's where cloud. we see the edge use case, the mo I've seen the mm -hmm. most use for that, right, is you want compute close to that environment, to those sensors for latency and other things, you're not going to shove all that data to the cloud. Those edge cases make a ton of sense yeah. to stay very close and kind of on-premy, even though aspects of the data and the control and the policies may be cloud-based. But I think you're going to continue to see that edge and that edge be a very lightweight edge running container systems. Mm -hmm. that That's going to continue. That means hybrid is around for a long, long time mm -hmm. because now we have to not only deal with multi-cloud, but we are going to be dealing with edge devices and still some data centers in this hybridized world. The question is, you know, is a SD-WAN the right way to do that? Or is there something really disruptive coming that allows us to not have to bring everything into a central place mm -hmm. to potentially create latency and, and other issues? Um, and a lot of these solutions require... Uh, a, a, sometimes they have to replicate data in the cloud to make it faster, but then that becomes a potential attack vector. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of considerations when you think about, okay, if I'm using one of these things, does it add latency? Is it exposing my data in a way I didn't want to? These are all considerations I think people need to look at. Um, there was a funding announcement from uh, an Israeli startup called Medigate. They did a $15 million Series A in uh, the medical security, uh, strategic partnerships, engineering security vendors, 
I'm trying to get to exactly what uh, what they do. Of course, you know. Oh, I got I got this one. Go I, for it, John. Yeah, this one caught my attention. So, in a lot of hospitals, you have a ton of different devices. I think we all know that, right? These specialized devices, and a tremendous number of these different devices, they actually call back in many situations to their vendors. I was just on site. Uh, recently with a hospital where we were running AI Hunter and we identified a whole crap ton of these devices that are beaconing out constantly. They're sending out logs, they're sending out telemetry. And some of these devices, I heard a story from the customer, they actually have remote access that's built in and it has to be on. So they actually had a situation where one of their vendors got compromised. Once the vendor was compromised, then the attackers got access to all of the customers, i.e. hospitals, by the back channel to remote access all their different devices that were sitting on Active Directory and a whole bunch of hospitals got compromised that way. So when you're looking at something like Metagate, um, I think it's an absolutely brilliant approach because there's clearly a need. It's also a very niche market, and it's a very niche market that'll actually pay for a specific security solution that'll actually solve that specific problem. So it does make sense because there's tons of different devices showing up all over the place. There's a lot of legacy applications. How do you inventory all of those applications? How do you inventory those devices? How do you identify who they're beaconing out to? And how do you actually identify if there's any security risks associated with it is huge. And I looked at how Medicaid is doing it and doing it passively on the network and identifying these different devices through a number of means. It's it's a solid approach if you're a medical institution for sure. Yeah, yeah I was in you know, this problem, you know, kind of hit me in the face when I went to visit my friend in the hospital. She just had a baby, premature. And when you look at all of the mm-hmm. monitoring devices, you know that they're using in in uh, you know for that specific situation. You're like, wow. And yeah. It, it's not just like in you think of IoT devices, you know, outside of industrial controls and medical, and you're like, yeah, like turns the lights off and you know maybe controls some fans. And oh. then you go into these devices like ICS and medical, and they're monitoring mm-hmm. very people. Yeah. Babies and all of the devices connected. I'm like, oh my god, that's all a the telemetry, the heart yeah. machines, um, all the imaging machines. All these are in that environment. What I what I see this as, John, a little bit as a very focused industrial IoT kind of security solution, right? Mm-hmm. Think yep. of mm-hmm. these are these are industrial IoT type systems, right? They're they're mm-hmm. on the network. They're doing activities. They have to communicate, get updates, have maintenance. This is a very specialized case where traditionally what we've seen is vendors going after IoT or industrial IoT as a whole. And a huge spread. Yeah. Right. Huge spread. This is a very focused solution that says, look, we're going to protect the medical equipment in the hospitals, in the environments, create, you know, just solve that problem. They're not trying to solve the power plants, the electric grids, all the other things that are out there. This is very focused. And U.S. Venture Partners, who, again, uh, Jacques has actually mentioned in this article, they have a number of other co- companies, both in the security and the healthcare side. So from an investment perspective, this fits their portfolio really well, really securing the healthcare side of the equation. If somebody else wants to go after the broader or other areas, I'm sure Medigate's like, yeah, I'm okay with that for now. Well, and Medigate is awesome. Like if you actually look at the interface, they actually show you a picture of that device. And I know that that seems like a goofy gimmick, but the site that I was on, we were finding devices that were beaconing back. And then we were working with people trying to find the device. We would have the MAC address. We could see the manufacturer. We might get an idea of what range of devices it was from a vendor, but we didn't know the specific device. It is stupid, awesome, and incredibly effective if you can basically say the device looks like this. 
this is what this thing looks like. Go find it. And being able to get that to your on-the-ground IT staff to be able to discover those things. And from a sales and marketing perspective, it goes further to show that it is a highly tailored solution for medical institutions. And I, I just I just think that it's a it's just a really well done package on this company side. Uh, did you guys look at the technology from Resec, I think is how you how you say it, which makes sense when you kind of understand how their product works. Yes, they are an endpoint protection vendor, but what it looks like they're doing, <laughs> haven't done a briefing with them yet, but they if you dig around on their website, it says their platform processes all files, analyzes the content structure, and then rebuilds a duplicate file, no loss of functionality. And I think what they could be saying is they're stripping out bad stuff. I mean, you know, we all know the system calls and other things that typically lead to some type of compromise or backdoor. It sounds like that's what they're doing. Yeah, this reminds me a little bit. It uh, wasn't an end game that created some behavior capabilities of files on yeah. certain file types. There are a lot of vendors doing very, very yeah, that's similar what things. Not exactly the same, I don't think, but similar things. Absolutely. Yeah, but yeah. that's what these guys kind of look like, right? They're yeah. not relying on signature-based mm -hmm. detection. They're they're actually trying to do it more looking at the file and what's in the file uh, I think and can I strip it out. I think they're stripping active content, right? So if you have a macro in a document, it identifies and yep. strips it. If you have any active content in a PDF, strip it. And I think that that's cute, um, but a lot of attack vectors, like this is a very small percentage of the overall attack vectors. I mean, to be honest, we do use macros, absolutely, constantly to break into organizations. However, a large number of our attacks are actually direct memory injection attacks. We can actually, the malware itself is not in the file. The file itself is a stager that reaches back and then injects the real malware up into memory. And that is going to be a little bit more difficult. Um, the first time I ever saw this, it was done by T.J. O'Connor um, in uh, a hacking competition, I think between Army and Navy. Um, I'm not exactly sure which one, but he actually wrote a SANS paper on it and actually released the code where it could see files real time, analyze the files, strip the active content out, and then allow the files to go through. So this has been around for a while. I think that was about eight to 10 years ago. And I, I, I am concerned about um, I'm concerned about this actually taking off to the point where it is actually useful um, and this company actually surviving. I'm interested to see how these technologies evolve and who's going to be the big winner. Because I, I think there will be a big winner in this space of these active protection. And we've seen a lot of them, I think. Um, yeah, but are they standalone vendors or these vendors, this technology get embedded into, into broader something endpoint else. plays, right? Sure, I sure. think that's the yeah. bigger question. Because you see... Uh, Versec is one. Um, there's another endpoint vendor out there. Capsulate is doing not this, but something similar to protect Linux systems. Doing a very, very good job. I did a briefing and a demo with Capsulate. I'm super, I'm like, I want this in all my containers because it makes it really hard to exploit uh, a Linux system and the way they hook in is a very proprietary method. And basically, based on what they're observing, behaviors and things that go against, you know, what a system normally does. I mean, they've got that pretty well licked. I mean, I was asking some hard questions and I'm like, no, we'd catch that. Like if I just rename the file, they're like, no, we're hooked into, you know, the Linux subsystem so deeply that it, it doesn't matter if you play all those cute tricks. Like on Windows, John, like if you rename PowerShell.exe, like you bypass a lot of things, a lot of like Resec and Capsulate, they'll catch that stuff because... They're, they're hooked in so My deeply. My only concern with these technologies is when I strip out the underlying Linux system in a serverless world, mm -hmm. how do they work? 
Yeah. Because that's the next evolution of where infrastructure is right. going. And if it's great that you're hooked in that deep. But the question is, when I'm running in environments like um, Fargate or other environments where there is no place to put those hooks, right. now how do I do this stuff? So either your provider, we've had this conversation, right? Either your provider's got to run it or they have to come up with a way to accomplish the same thing in a higher level. Up Correct, without yeah. being hooked into the underlying host. And sure. that's the next big challenge, I think, well, in the industry. It, and I, I keep coming back to the biggest concern that I have for this is this is looking at attack vectors that we were using. I mean, we still use it to a limited extent, but this, like from what I'm seeing, like how they're analyzing files through FTP while it hits the device on web and on email, they're, they're just not going to work. Um, it just isn't. And that has a lot to do with how you actually inject that memory, how you use core operating system libraries, like using bits to do the download to actually pull and execute, um, using the C-sharp tri tricks that Marcello's coming up with. Mm -hmm. So I, I, that's my concern, is this seems to be a very, 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 very narrowly defined subset of what they're doing. And let's say that they do it better than anybody else on the face of the planet. It's still ignoring like 70% of the types of attacks where malware is actually injecting itself into memory on computer systems. This last one, the link is broken, uh, apparently. I had to really work to find their announcement. The uh, uh, it's a blockchain. Anchain.ai. Yeah. yeah, it's a blockchain company. Which I'm in search of. I I got some blockchain. We found a couple. They've been come. They've been more common this year than I think last year. Um, Matt and I, John, basically looking at, and we've talked about blockchain before and how it applies to information security uh, above and beyond the currency aspect of it. Yeah, you had to di you, get, you had to go out. There's a Medium uh, article mm -hmm. blog on this one because I wanted to know what they were actually doing. Yeah. And it's two unique products. One is what they call contract auditing platform. That's the smart contract. There's a lot of vendors yep. that are applying blockchain so to it's the a con contract to basically chain of custody for a contract. Right, right. right? Yeah. yeah. And so this is a containerized cloud SaaS offering to do the contract auditing component. Mm -hmm. The second product is what they call situational awareness platform. And that's to proactively protect smart contract assets like ETH, ERC-20, BTC, et cetera. Um, so it looks like it's a combination of two products that um, mm -hmm. make up this company. That's what I wanted to try to get to is what are they actually doing with blockchain? And it looks like some contract auditing and some protection around the contract assets themselves. Don't know exactly how it works, but there is a, a, a medium blog post on this. Mm. And Greylock yeah, Partners was one of their uh, participated in the initial seed round. They funded some other, a lot of other, uh, I feel like, uh, security companies. Yeah. Well, and, and I still come back to with blockchain. I think it's absolutely important, especially for security professionals, to understand the concepts of smart contracts and how that's going to work moving forward in the future. But my concern is a lot of the applications of blockchain. Um, we already have technologies that have solved that. Like, that's not a problem. Like, databases do a lot of stuff that blockchains can actually do. And, I, I like, the smart contract, I get it. And if they're in on that, but uh, I, I don't know. We're going to have to look a little bit further as far as what they are doing. Does it do anything beyond smart contract auditing, to be honest? And it doesn't necessarily look like it, uh, except for maybe their situational awareness platform can do something. But they don't get into the specifics, so I don't know how they do it. But when I first read the announcement, AI-powered blockchain security company, I'm like, yeah, there's a few buzzwords, buzzwords. pulled together. 
Uh, that's yep. why I had to go find some details because oh, no, I'm they, like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> they actually coined the phrase blockchain advanced persistent threat. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, that rounds out the stories. For, on that note, that will round out the stories for this week. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, everyone, for listening and watching. We'll see you next time. <laughs>